listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. One of the quotes in Buddhism that's always kind of stuck with me is that line that the Buddha offered where he says, I teach suffering, the end of suffering. He didn't say what that was going to be like. He just said, these are the things I teach. Suffering and the end of suffering. And one of the most remarkable things that I ran into in my practice was uh, my resistance to committing in any type of formal way to either a path or a teacher. Meaning that I loved sampling. I loved kind of going around and sampling different, uh, you know, diff- this, this teacher and this teacher and this teacher. And whenever they got, uh, I realized this much later, but whenever they got a little too close, too much in my kitchen, as you might say, I, uh, I kind of backed out. I said, nah, well, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't fun anymore. Because I, damn, I wanted it to be fun. You know, if spiritual work wasn't going to be fun, then it wasn't spiritual work. Uh, I realized that my attachment to fun got in the way of any type of true spiritual work. This isn't to say that uh, fun cannot be had, but rather that there's more to it. My, uh, there was finally one guy that I kind of ended up through just, <laughs> I just kind of ended up deciding, all right, you're the guy. So uh, uh, what, what transpired when I decided to commit kind of to a teacher and to a path and to a way to live one's life, I was going to live, I wanted to live close to this teaching. And the strangest thing happened as the commitment kind of arose in me, everything got easier. Some of you may have experienced this before in your life wherein you commit to something and you literally vow, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give my heart and soul to this until something really, you know, really breaks it up. It creates a qualitative and quantitative difference in the way we approach whatever it is that we're committing to. Marriage is a classic example. There's something different about a marriage to somebody as opposed to just going out with them, just living with them, uh, or cohabitating, or, you know. And it's not to say that one is necessarily better than the other. What does occur, though, when we do commit, there is a, a shift in our approach, if this makes sense. Now, whether you decide to commit to, uh, you know, the, the, the Zen path, let's say, or some Vajrayana path, or something different, 
or no path, if you, if you decide to just kind of, just kind of sample, uh, wet your toes, if you will, that's a, the uh, visual that keeps coming into my head, you're never going to get soaked with the Dharma. And I think it's really helpful to kind of, kind of look at this seriously for yourselves. What, what gets in the way of the vow? <laughs> what gets in the way of the vow? Now, in the Zen tradition, I very, you know, publicly, uh, uh, you know, I put together uh, what we call a rakasu, and uh, uh, I, I happen to be a, a very, a really unskilled seamster. And sewing this thing was excruciatingly difficult, not only just uh, on my um, on my psyche, but on my fingertips. I was constantly like sewing my fingers into things and blood everywhere. Uh, it was it was quite funny after a while, uh, albeit painful. But there was something about that act that was very powerful. We don't do that here. Infinite Smile doesn't go into that space. Yet, I would ask that you look very, very carefully. What are you committed to spiritually? What is it that you really want? I want to read to you real briefly. This question was asked of uh, Norman Fisher, who I just have so much respect for. And he, uh, uh, the, the, the person said, this is after he'd given a Dharma talk, and Norman was rather, you know, casually, you know, kind of sitting there and so forth. And the uh, person said, what do you find, or, or rather, who do you find... Um, uh, uh, or is there, is there a path that's more successful than another path? He kind of smiled and he says, well, usually people that take it slowly, but take it seriously. They really kind of take it on. They take it slowly, but seriously. And then he went on to explain people who usually start by going to, uh, in his case, the Zen Center every once in a while. And then they might uh, show up for a one-day sitting. And after the one-day sitting, they decide to uh, do maybe a few more of those. And then they do a sashin, you know, where they do a whole week. Things like this, he said, really help to ease the person out of their habitual mind traps and into opening. I thought that was really cool. Out of their habitual mind traps and into opening. And they take a little bit at a time. But they commit to it. So I wanted to read to you uh, something I, I wrote at the beginning of chapter 8 of, um, of Awaken This Life. A, a fine book, by the way. <laughs> the commitment to walking along the path of awakening challenges us in ways that most of us don't expect. Truly dedicating ourselves to anything is hard work, but this is especially true for this process. Devotion to deep spiritual work is perhaps one of the most treacherous areas for any of us to explore since it involves nothing short of an all-encompassing promise to live our lives as profound expressions of the truth that all the great spiritual teachers, whether they be Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Christian, Buddhist, or anything else, have been pointing out over the course of human history. What is it that those among us who are returning from the mountain 
who are truly living the confluence of wisdom and compassion used to guide their every response to conventional circumstances? The answer is simple. They vow, simply, wholeheartedly, intentionally and continually to live in ways that do not harm. But this vow not to harm can be a challenge since enacting this profound promise extracts many of the things our egos have tucked away in our consciousness and forces them into our immediate experience. It forces them into our immediate experience. When we decide to live in a way that is not adversarial, when we decide to live in a way where we break down the barrier between in here and out there, where we consciously meet what is, where we dance with our fear, when we become intimate with everything, when we consciously commit to living in such a way, everything opens up. Now, this may or may not mean that you make a formal commitment. Um, we don't really offer that here in this particular Sangha. I happen to believe, uh, I may get struck by Buddhist lightning here, but it's not, it's not so important that you make the vow formal externally as it is that you make the vow deeply internally. That for yourself you decide this is important, whatever it might be. Maybe it's enlightenment. Maybe it's, maybe it's material wealth. I don't know. Whatever it is for you, when you kind of step into that realm of, I'm doing this. I'm giving myself over to this. That devotional expression, if it's wholehearted, if it's intentional, if it's conscious, moves things. It can't help but move things. So let's, uh, let's sit and let that intention fly, okay? Consciously move things with stillness. does the end of suffering look like? Well, you get, to, uh, you get to do the work and then report back, basically, is kind of how it, how it uh, unfolds. But I'd love to just kind of talk about that for a little bit. The end of suffering I guess the uh, the shortest way we could talk about the end of suffering is through one word, which is release. When there is utter and total release, when there is no longer any grasping, there's no longer any clinging, there's no holding, there's just release. We let go. And upon doing this, especially when there's a commitment to living in a way that continually, consciously 
let's go, we find that there is this little miracle that kind of starts to happen. And that is the fear begins to kind of go away. Fear, if you want to get at the essence of fear, it's the separate self-sense or the ego or the mind, whichever term you want to use, perceives that there will be loss. There will be loss of something that this self-sense wants to keep, wants to hold, wants to maintain. And upon sensing that there will be loss of something of perceived value, the clinging starts, the non-letting go, okay? And thus is born the engine to suffering. We fuel our suffering when we cling. We fuel our suffering when we avoid. Both are exactly the same move, just in different directions. Clinging or grasping for something, greed, or the same move in the other direction, aversion, something else. I don't want that, I want something else. Both moves take us out of what is. Both moves are non-letting go. Now at this point, and I've probably said that to this group about a thousand times, the question that always comes up is, well, what about your, your daughter, your kids? I mean, you know, I've got a daughter that I'm just crazy about. And, um, you know, do I let go of her? Yes we let go of those we love most. In fact, love is the felt sense of total surrender to whatever miracle is in front of us. And so as much as my, uh, my baby girl and soon-to-be baby whatever um, come into my life, uh, I can't hold on to them. Okay, I can't keep them small. In fact, I don't want to. I want them to grow. I want them to evolve. I want them to see this miraculous and horrific world. I want them to experience the totality of this thing called life. I had a friend who freaked out because Cade, um, uh, my daughter, she's almost two, she, uh, uh, skinned her knee, and she, she does this marvelously. She's a great knee skinner, actually. She's always, always skinning her knees. And she fortunately inherited her mother's uh, high pain threshold, and so will constantly comment on the fact that she has just skinned her knee by saying, ow, boo-boo, kiss it, I'm sorry. Um, and which is just a mimicking of me saying, I'm, oh, I'm sorry, that must hurt, I'm sorry. And she's, yeah, I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> But it's, it's really cool watching how she's over it and then, then moves on. And to a degree, this is kind of how we would like to practice. We can't hang on to anything, whether it's something like the perfection of our beautiful knee skin or it's something a little deeper. Every single thing we have in our 
lives. And every single thing we can conceive in mind, every single feeling, every single experience, all of it, all of it is temporary. We can't hang on to it. We can't grasp it. And yet, we do. Now, I'll give you guys a, uh, an example of how many of us have uh, um, what you might call an enlightened approach towards a very common experience. And that is, whenever you look up at the clouds and you see a beautiful cloud formation, and you just let it in, whenever you see the vastness of the ocean or the vastness of the night sky, whenever you, you look at that and you're just like, oh, wow you get that sense of surrender. You actually get a felt sense that's almost akin to love, openness, surrender, yeah? Now, how many of you have ever been in a situation where, let's say, we're, we're doing this during the daytime, we begin looking at the cloud formations that are rising, absolutely beautiful, and you say to yourself, stop, hold, you know? It doesn't happen because we know we can't. Yet our minds have fooled us into believing that we can do that with our life experience, that we can hold on to something of particular value. Just like we cannot control the clouds in the sky, nor can we control everything that goes on in our lives. And the sense that we can fuels the delusion, fuels our suffering. When we start developing a relationship with our lives like we have towards the clouds in the sky, <laughs> it's like, uh, wow. With whatever's going on, when there's just an appreciation for what is without trying to hold it or manage it, suddenly what happens? There's love. There's openness. There's tenderness combined with wisdom with a commitment we add a little resolve to it we stiffen it up a little bit and what do we do we move through the world intact integrated and awake there's a big fear as we as we go through this work one of the many fears but you know, since you know, we talk about how f uh, fear is about the sense of loss, the mind's, the mind's stories around loss. One of the big fears that arises again and again and again as our practice begins to deepen is, oh my God, will this, will this mean I'll just lose motivation entirely for my life, for my relationship with my spouse, for my job, you know, whatever it is. Because there's this, there's this opening, there's this spaciousness that begins to kind of unfold where there is no grasping. However, that fear itself, the fear that we will lose what we have worked so hard to build, the fear that we will eradicate vows we have taken prior to this practice, let's say, is merely ego coming in through the back door, trying to keep us from meeting our life fully. And I would encourage you, Meet your life fully. The ego is really uh, persnickety. I dare to use that word sometime tomorrow. Just 
persnickety. <laughs> it really is. It, it, as we start developing this certain fearlessness that we, we, we know everything is temporary. We know that we're going to lose everything. Okay? So we, we begin to, instead of trying to hold on to it, we begin to develop an open appreciation for all that is. And in so doing, we get into a space where fearlessness starts to abound. And that fearlessness also allows us to observe the ego as it generates fear. If you go any further on this path, you may lose everything. Oh, wow, there's some fear. We begin to watch that. And that which is observing that fear is never, ever bound by that fear. It's bigger. Now, before you walk out of here thinking this is too heady and I'm so lost and everything, recognize that you're here most likely or you're on a spiritual path to uncover an end to suffering. And we can do that by staying real close to what's actually going on in our life. When we can actually stand in the middle of our fear without flinching, without moving, without running away Paradoxically, the more we run away from our fear, the more we generate fear. The more, the more we chase after, this is, uh, I had a friend ask me when I was, when I was uh, taken off, uh, I went to you know, Thailand and Nepal and studied, studied with masters in those, those two countries. And then back here, I lived in, uh, lived in a monastery for a while. And a friend asked me, well, well what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm gonna go chase Buddha. And I realized that the faster I ran, metaphorically, the further Buddha got out ahead of me. Is that bizarre? I mean, most of you probably can kind of go, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It, it really did. It was the strangest thing. It was when I stopped, when I got still, and I just bathed in that stillness, that shifts started to occur that I recognized that Buddha was not something to apprehend. Buddha was not something to get. God, Christ consciousness, spirit, whatever you want to call it, is not something we grasp. It's what arises in the middle of our surrender. So this is kind of a roundabout way of me just kind of trying to tell you Look at your fear. Commit not to flinch in the face of it. What are you afraid of losing? What are your strategies for insulating yourself against the pain of potential loss? When you can start to recognize that subtlety, you can bring the light of your awareness into the darkest corners of your consciousness. And in doing that, when there is light, when the shadows begin to fall on their own, okay, they just fall away, what's left? The clear, resonant light of what you've always been, of what you truly are, your true self. And you'll recognize it because it's the face you had 
before your grandparents were born, as we say in Zen. Thank you. Any questions? Yes. <laughs> While I remember it. While you remember it. Fine. Um, something that came up was that no matter, I, I know, this is a, it is a question, fear of clowns, fear of crossing the bridge, fear of, uh, you know, whatever, is it all coming from the same? Fear of, fear of loss. Like I fear clowns because um, when I was about five, a clown um, beat up my father. <laughs> I'm t totally that kidding. Suddenly, everybody, I'm looking at everybody's going. <laughs> I make a practice of not flinching. Yes. Um, before I get to that, the answer to that really cool question, I'm wondering if someone could. Go to the go to the thermostat and hit the up arrow about five or six times. <laughs> that way, it should shut us down. It just it's it's harder on the recording. It's harder to hear more uh, clearly. So, Iris, the the question as I heard it was: Whenever we have fear of anything, be it uh, you had a kind of a cute list there, clowns. What else was it? Crossing the Bay Bridge. Crossing the bridge. Uh -huh. whatever, whatever that fear might be. What? What was it? Is it coming from the same, the same place for us? Yes, there may be variances on uh, the, spe the specifics of the fear, but it's always about loss. And it usually settles down into loss of life. Okay, loss of life. Uh, or we, we might change the words and say death. And it might be death to what's familiar. Okay, so this gives the gives the ego a tremendous uh, uh, spacious area on on which to which to play and manipulate. Because, uh, for instance, uh, I don't know if you've ever noticed this in in any of your own lives, but oftentimes we will take on we we will make choices based on familiarity rather than on what we know to be right for us. And that's because we fear doing what's right for us because doing what's right for us requires change. Right? And change is all there is. Yet we fight that war against change with everything we've got. So when we kind of realign our uh, practice of living and we decide to commit to living close to what we know to be true, that will always take us closer and closer and closer, or should I say, further and further down the path towards what is true, what is true beyond name and form, as opposed to what is true to us. Is that kind of? Mm -hmm. Okay. It, yes, and it also um, it reinforces what you said about anytime you're moving towards something or away from something, you're not. You'll never get in it. In the present. You're not in the present. And it's when we sit still, it finds us. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, Ryan. This is a little bit uh, off the subject, kind of, but a lot of times when people are fearful, they tend to pray to God or mm -hmm. higher power. So how can you integrate any one conception of God or higher power into this practice? What uh, it means? 
How do you integrate the conception of God or higher power into the work that we're doing here? It's all God. It's all higher power. There's nothing about this that is not, that is not infused with spirit, that is not spirit playing. Okay? So um, what this forces on us, though, is it forces us out of that comfort zone. It means we have to reconfigure our conceptions about God. So whatever, whenever I say the word, for instance, God, everyone in this room usually has a little picture that flashes in their head as to what they think God looks like, is, you know, smells like, sounds like, whatever. And what this does is it actually forces us to reconfigure that whole notion into recognizing that God is absolutely prior to any notion we would ever have of God, whatever she looks like, whatever she's, you know, whatever. He just said she. <laughs> Preconceptions. We have those, we cling to these, these ideas. And so what we're, what we're doing now is we're actually giving each other an opportunity to go past the idea of spirit and actually let spirit live through us consciously. Now, miraculously, that's exactly what Christ talked about, okay? But it doesn't have the, the institutional nature kind of cluttering up the mess. It, it becomes a message that is stripped way, way down. And it's really uncomfortable for lots of people. Um, we have, in other words, uh, uh, you, you could argue that it, it becomes if we, it's a fairly infantile way of looking at God to assume that she would be really concerned with our personal experience that we have a personal relationship with God, that he's looking after us. He is a loving God. He is, well, really? Or does that just make you feel better? Because that's a haven for ego, to be able to look at God in ways that it can cling. He is loving. It says here, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? And so instead, what, where this teaching is kind of going is saying, you know, well, whether God is what you think it is or not doesn't matter. There's something prior to your concept of God that is indeed infinite. And in that infinite infinity, you can uncover uh, what you truly are. And we scripturally referred to that as a child of God or something. So it's basically, it's just a different, it's a different flavor or a different path up the mountain is what, is what we're talking about here. If we can assume that, that God itself is that mountain. Okay? <laughs> so how does that sit with you? <laughs> Pretty good. I've been reading uh, Emmett Fox's Sermon on the Mount lately, and it's, uh, it's very similar, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I was just trying to figure out how personal it is, you know. Right. Loving, he's happy, you know, he doesn't allow suffering, had an issue with that. You know, how can a loving God allow suffering, things like that. Right. And how it integrates into this practice, so. Yeah, now, uh, there is still love in suffering, right? There is still love in suffering. Have you ever loved so much that it hurts? Sure. Yeah. Read the Sermon on the Mount again, 
okay? It's cool. It's, it's really cool. You read the Sermon on the Mount again and listen to what Christ is pointing toward and don't cling to his words. Let the words wash over you and you'll get exactly what the Buddha was talking about, okay? So they're, they're, going, they're going in the same direction. You know, you start, you start looking at this stuff deep, you know, as deeply as possible and you start recognizing there's this massive expanse of richness and we just let it flood. Just let it flood over us and through us. And in that way, we can become, uh, we, can, we can walk as holy men and women that are, that are committed to being here f for each other. And that's ultimately what a bodhisattva is. A bodhisattva is someone who is helpful, you know. Great question. Yeah. Yeah. Sir Paul. I haven't been knighted yet. <laughs> Soon. Soon. So, fear. Um, I think if I understand this, um, fear, practice isn't about stopping fear or somehow overcoming fear. Fear will always be there, but the practice um, allows being in a place where the fear is not what overwhelming, damaging, you can live with it. Is that correct? Uh, I would say that's really close. I would, I would just, I would simplify it. I would say that what the practice allows for is for us to fundamentally change our relationship to fear. But it isn't going to go away. Of course not. But you don't have to, you don't have to suffer because of it. It's just fear. It's just fear. Just like anything else you might feel. It's just pain. <laughs> it goes away. Right? And so, despite the fact that there were tons of sighs in the room right there, like, oh, you don't know my pain, you know, or whatever. You know, we're in this really, really, it, it, there's this beautiful opportunity for us to recognize that, no, the pain doesn't go away. Nothing goes away. I mean, excuse me, the pain won't last forever. Nothing lasts forever. Nothing. Yeah, welcome it. Because it's giving you an opportunity to let it fill you. And when we do that without running away from it, we recognize that at the core, fear is merely intensity. It's just intensity. But our minds or our egos give it a name. They label it, they compartmental, compartmental, say it, Mike, compartmentalize it, categorize it, and put a, a little handle on it so we can carry it around with us. And then we call it baggage. Right? So the next time you feel afraid, the next time you feel uh, this is outside of the familiar, or the next time you feel uh, incredibly negative about something, or you're resisting something, welcome that. Let that be a point of practice for you. And just stand right there, experiencing the whole thing, and recognize that it'll come at you like a wave, and it'll leave you like a wave. 
might come back, but it'll also go away. And we begin to trust the universe's rhythm. We begin to trust that the chaos of infinity will not annihilate us. I should say, it won't annihilate what's true in us. It will wipe away all the stuff we don't need, cleans us up. There are some pretty intense fears. Yes. And the source of those fears can be almost debilitating. So I guess I'm... I'd like to get to a place where that's okay too. Yeah, so start with the smaller ones, the less debilitating versions of fear. Start there and then practice with the stuff that's a little bit tougher to deal with. And you will find that if you carry the commitment into the practice, you'll find a miracle in that. Here's to miracles. Thank <laughs> you.